We're going to open our Bibles to what we might call Paul's letter to the Cretans, mediated, in a sense, through Titus. And you'll recall from previous studies on the same title, the title being The Behavior of Christ's Body, that the Apostle Paul had some things that he charged Titus to deal with in the church about a hundred miles off the southern tip of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea that nonetheless, like any church anywhere, needed the hand of God to help them to become more in the image of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of the essence of what the idea of the behavior of Christ's body is all about. Let's give you a thought context so that you can follow along as we dig into the inspired word. Let's remember that before the incarnation of the eternal Logos, the concept of Christ's body was unknown, for it did not exist. Remember the language of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5? Speaking prophetically of Jesus' incarnation, we read there, quoting the Old Testament, that sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. That is to say that the incarnation involved a body being prepared for the eternal Logos, the Lord Jesus. The person is the same. It's the same Logos. It's the same Son of God. But now the Son of God, in the language of John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Son of God is taking on flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So in a very real sense, the idea of the behavior of Christ's body had no real reference point prior to the incarnation when the Son of God was carnated, when He took on flesh, fully God and fully man. But secondly, during Jesus' incarnation and earthly ministry, the behavior of Christ's body was equivalent to Jesus himself. In order to appreciate that, all one has to do is to read the four Gospels. I have heard the testimony of several individuals who have stated that it was through the reading of the Gospels before they came to know Jesus, before they came into a relationship with God, that as they read the Gospels, obviously the Holy Spirit is working in the background, but they just fell in love with this person that was being revealed to them through the Gospels. And of course, the Gospels are the record of what Jesus was doing when he was in his body, when he had taken on a body and he was dwelling among us and he could be touched and handled and felt. And so we read, for example, in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, after Jesus had just healed a deaf, mute man near the city of Decapolis, the multitude says, He hath done all things well. So you see, when Jesus was on the earth in his own human body, everywhere he went and everything he did, he did well. His behavior was always excellent. It was always right in line with the will and heart of his Father. You'll remember the language that is spoken from heaven toward Christ, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus is no longer here. 
And therefore, we cannot look for the behavior that is in keeping with Jesus by simply finding wherever he might be, crossing the Sea of Galilee because he went to the other side. And we want to see how Jesus behaves. What is the behavior of this one named Jesus? What is his body doing? How is he conducting himself? This was an entirely new experience when Jesus came. All the saints in the Old Testament did not have the privilege of actually seeing God in the flesh dwelling among them and manifesting in perfections the very image, heart, and purposes of Almighty God. You see, there is something we call the ascension. And as a matter of fact, the same disciple named John who said that that which was from the beginning, which during a span of God's eternal plan was not available to be heard in person, God spake in sundry times and in diverse manners unto us by the prophets, that's true, but he hadn't yet spoken unto us in a human body through his Son. And John said, that which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, our hands have handled the very word of life. To understand what God wants, to understand how God wants us to live was simply to be by Jesus' body. But as I say, this same apostle that wrote such things in 1 John was among the members among the believers that witnessed Jesus' ascension and watched his body go up into the clouds. And they had to take to heart what Jesus had said to them prior to his ascension. He said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be Christians. No, actually he said, you will be my witnesses but what he's referring to is not just the idea that there would be signposts, just stiff, rigid individuals doing nothing more than pointing back to Jesus, saying something like, don't look at me, I don't walk like Christ walked, follow him. And who is the him? Well, he's not around anymore, but we'll try to tell you stories about him, we'll try to write some gospels so you can read about him, but... Don't look at me, I'm nothing like he was and don't intend to be. That's not what Jesus was implying. You don't need to have the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be just a signpost saying, why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you read about Jesus? Let me point you to him. I don't represent him in any appreciable way, but I want to point you to Christ. When Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, as I stated initially when I said that, he meant that we will be Christians. That we now will go and do and teach what he began to do and teach. We will walk like him. It is enough for the disciple to be like his master. We are to grow up into him in all things. And therefore, when we read Paul's language to the Corinthians, found in the 12th chapter and the 27th verse, we should very much take it to heart in this connotation, for it very much embraces this idea. We can think about Jesus' ascension. 
And then we can think about the angels turning to them and saying, why, you men of Galilee, you believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you initial members of Jesus' body, why are you standing watching his body go up to heaven? Go back to Jerusalem to receive the power of the Holy Spirit so you can continue to be the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and carry on this witness to the furthest reaches of this globe. Paul said to the Corinthians, now you, the ecclesia, you are the body of Christ and the members in particular. Oh, and brothers and sisters, if that means no more to you than just a synonym for an assembly, just a synonym for a group, just a synonym for a church. So if we say you are the body of Christ, and you only hear that as saying you happen to be the group that comes to this building and takes seats and listens to sermons and so on, and you fail to recognize it in the light of the ascension, given that Jesus is no longer here, it is certainly God's intention that the ways of the Lord Jesus would still be manifest and shine out to other men. And now we are the body of Christ and members in particular. And if there's any hesitation in receiving that idea because you feel as though there is no single individual who could ever measure up to the testimony and the life and the character of Christ, I would agree with you that is true. But did you hear the language? It didn't say, William, you are now the person of the Lord Jesus Christ effectively. You are now the incarnation of the will and ways of God. That is not what the Lord said, not toward me, not toward any of you. He says to his churches, he says to the gathered believers, you are the body of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will so perfect various giftings and callings and shape characters and grant blessings such that collectively you will be able to manifest the very character and the the essence of the Lord Jesus Christ up to its perfections, well, that's what we strive for. That's what we're called to strive for, to press for the mark, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, to know Him in every last dimension of His life. And so it's an important thing to think about as it relates to the church. What is the behavior of any particular local church? What is the behavior of the believers that attend that church? You know why? Because now that constitutes the behavior of Christ's body. We represent Jesus in this earth. We represent Christ to one another. And people want to see Jesus. And we have a call to manifest Christ to a blind and hardened world. We have a call to manifest Christ to lost and wayward family members. We have a call to manifest Christ to a church that often still manifests too much of the old man. This is a high calling. It's a difficult thing to get right every day of the week, but it is what the Word of God wants to say to us, and these messages are intended to help us to examine ourselves, to see what God says about what our behavior should look like so we can more and more be the body of Christ in the way that God wants us to look. Let's think for a moment about how the behavior was going on in Crete. Paul said to Titus, I left you in Crete because there were some things that needed to be set in order. There were some things that were lacking. That's in verse 5 of chapter 1. 
Isn't it interesting that the apostle left one of his useful understudies by the name of Titus in a certain location? He left him there, and Titus stayed there. He stayed there for a week. He stayed there for two weeks. He stayed there for three weeks. I don't know how long he stayed there, but if he fulfilled the purpose for his being there in the first place, then at the end of it, he will have set in order certain things that were lacking. And dear brothers and sisters, we're back in this study, today being Communion Sunday again, partly because we haven't covered all the material that is found in Titus chapter 2, but also we can think of it along these lines that God leaves us in certain places in the Bible. He leaves us in certain topics of teaching. He leaves us in certain exhortations because he's still dealing with our lives and seeking to get things in order. You might say, well, why don't we just move on to something else? Well, why didn't Titus just move on to some new location? Because Paul said, I left you there, and I want you to stay right there until you set in order the things that are lacking. There were several problems in Crete. I'll remind you of three of them. The first one is found in Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, There are many unruly, the ESV has insubordinate, and vain or empty talkers and deceivers. There were many, maybe in the class of ministry, but maybe not. It doesn't say that they were necessarily in the ministry. They were just insubordinate. They were manifesting a disagreeable spirit within the context of the Cretan church. And we can hope that the pastor was a godly man and Christ-minded and so on. And so this is obviously in opposition to whatever was going on in terms of how these assemblies were being led. There were many insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, especially those who felt that they had some sort of religious pedigree to their resume, and he says their mouths need to be stopped. So that's one of the things that had to be dealt with. Another thing that had to be dealt with is not just that influence that was probably in part among them, because remember, Paul would go to the synagogues, and he would preach in the synagogues, and Jews would get saved, and so probably there were circumcision elements within the Cretan churches, but it could have been some pressure from the outside as well. But the second problem has to deal directly with the membership, though it's talking about the culture, yet the culture hadn't been fully purged out of the Cretan church. And so it can be with ourselves that the culture and our growing up experiences, the shaping of our lives as we just grew up in this United States, as it were, in this New England region, there could re be residual characteristics that are not from the Lord that have to be addressed. You'll remember that there was a certain saying that had become sort of proverbial, stated from someone who at one point had lived on the island of Crete, Epimenides, and he said that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, or as one translation has, lazy gluttons. Here's the key thing that is said. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, and excuse me, writing to Titus, 
and giving him instruction, he said, this witness is true. That is to say, there are residual elements that Paul detects among the believers that assemble in Crete. He says, you need to rebuke them sharply so that they might be sound in the faith. And that's an interesting word, sound. It means to be healthy in the faith. We have, we'll have reason to look at that in the course of this study. And then there's problem number three, and I'll just end with this problem. It is found in the 16th verse, also of the first chapter. He speaks of those that profess that they know God. So with respect to their confession, with respect to their statements, they are essentially unassailable. If you ask them a question, they'll give you the right answer. Put on the spot, they'll say the right thing. But when it comes to their actions, when it comes to their behavior, they're denying the very things that they say they believe. He even says they're abhorrent, abominable, is how the King James translates it. They're disobedient, and all of the good works that from one side of their life they produce, it reminds me of Matthew 7, 21 through 23, but all of the works that from one side of the, their life they produce, they are nonetheless rejected by God because they aren't motivated from a Christ-like character overall. And if nothing else, God is still trying to get the attention of myself and anyone who is in this sort of situation. Let's make sure that we're not just talking about other people here. What I'm saying is this is how we have to examine our lives, that it's not the behavior of Christ's body that we're bringing forth when we profess that we know God, but our character is often a denial of the word that we're taught and the word that we confess to. And so you can't overcome that by good works here and there. A nice smile here, a nice act to your neighbor over here, putting a little extra money in the offering box over there, helping your parents on some occasion. You can't overcome those things, brothers and sisters. God wants to get at your character so that those good works are not ultimately rejected because, you know, we appreciate all the good works, but you know, God can find plenty of people to do those good works. God's not lacking the ability to bless people financially or help people across the street. I'm not suggesting that, you know, there are kind people all over the world. What I'm trying to say is if we're just looking for social services or welfare programs or handouts, God can create that or allow that to happen through the state or through half-committed agencies or false religions or whatever. He'll get them out there if that's what He wants to do through His common grace. I'm trying to say that what we really need is the character of Christ. I mean, I'm not so sure it's true of any of us, but I'm sure of some religious situ situations you would do better to dial back all of your so-called good works and concentrate more on your character. Well, what is the remedy to this issue in Crete? What would be the remedy for any church that needs to be shored up so that their behavior is like Christ's body? You know what I mean? Their behavior is like Jesus, so that when you look, if you're looking for what is the behavior of Jesus, how would Jesus behave himself? You follow the, the burden of this teaching? You look on the church in Crete. And whether you realize it or not, you are taken by the beauty of their love and the beauty of their courage and the beauty of their truth and the beauty of their kindness. You're taken by all these things and they're going to tell you when you, 
When you see these things and they bless your heart, they've come to us by the grace of God. You're seeing the work of Christ in us. And that is what draws the sinner to God. When Christ is lifted up, He draws men to Him. So the remedy for this set of problems in Crete was given to Titus in chapter 2 and verse 1. There's a sense in which in chapter 1, Paul laid out the reason for dropping Titus off, as it were, in Crete. So now stay there. You've got a job to do. You've got to fix these things that aren't right in that church. Amen, brothers and sisters. We need more situations like that. Churches need to be more open to that idea. Pastors need to sense the obligation from the Holy Spirit to stay there, not just physically, but stay on these various issues as opposed to just skipping through the Bible, working through your exegetical sermons, and never actually accomplishing the changes that are spoken about in the very text that you're reading and preaching on. Stay there and get these things straightened out, is what Paul said to Titus. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 2, Speak thou the things that become sound doctrine. Now this has to be exegeted a bit so you understand what is actually being said here. Because of the word become, and the way it might work in your mind. So he isn't saying, speak things and keep refining your statements and studying the word more carefully to get more and more precise in your formulations so that ultimately what you say will indeed be sound doctrine. Speak the things that will become, sooner or later, sound doctrine. He certainly isn't saying that. Nor is he saying, give them a body of teaching, something like a systematic theology presentation of the content of the Bible. Teach them on the person of God. Give them good theology. Give them good Christology. Give them good soteriology. Give them good eschatology. So that ultimately they can put all these things together and it will become sound doctrine. Now, both of those things that I just shared with you are perfectly fine endeavors where to study to show ourselves approved and refine our understanding of the Bible so that when we preach, it is indeed sound and perfectly healthy doctrine. It is also good to accrue a broad knowledge of the Bible, something like a systematic understanding, so that you get a sound understanding of all the teachings that God has inspired us to know. But that is not precisely what this verse is saying. The term translated become is the Greek term prepo, and it means to be in agreement with, to be proper to, to be fitting. In the New King James Version, it is translated in this way, Speak thou the things which are proper for sound doctrine. In the New English Translation, it is translated this way, and this gets more to the point. Communicate the behavior that goes with sound doctrine. And so the idea here is Paul is not disputing that the Cretans have a good handle on doctrine, something like the Corinthians would also have had. They have quite a bit of knowledge because they've been taught over a span of time about the Word of God. But what they're lacking is the behavior that is fitting 
for a place that otherwise has the message of God. We need more than just the ability to espouse a creed or to quote verses of the Bible or to tell other people where they're missing it. We need things that are fitting behavior that goes with sound doctrine. And so a Scottish expositor expresses the idea in this way. He says, Titus is to teach them what is in accord with sound doctrine. We infer from this that doctrine and practice for a Christian are to keep in step with each other. This is what we're talking about, brothers and sisters. Soundness in the faith is to be accompanied by a lifestyle that harmonizes with it. And Titus' responsibility is to spell out in detail what that means for various groups in the church. So what we discover and what we will work with as we move through the content of Titus chapter 2 is not a further telling of various ideas that Christians are supposed to understand theologically. It's not an infusion of more words and more content. Something like what comes to my mind right now off the top is Romans chapter 5 and a theological discussion of the first Adam and the second Adam and the idea of sin and how it worked its way into humanity and what the remedy is and imputation and representation and substitution. All those beautiful ideas, they were taught and it's necessary that they understand those things. But Paul is saying we have some behavior problems in a group that otherwise knows the word. And as such, that does not represent Jesus well, because when you watched his body, when his body was on the earth, his life and his practice matched his belief in his teaching. And that was one of the most compelling things about him. He did all things well. He didn't just quote things well. He actually did things well. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good in his teaching and in his ministry, he knew how to comfort, exhort, and charge. Oh, hallelujah. And so we have six classes of individuals that are going to be addressed. As I say, it's not going to say, okay, aged men, here's something about the attributes of God that you evidently don't understand yet. His aseity. See, some of you older men, you don't know what that means. So I'm going to teach you about what that means. And you aged women... Here's something about the person of Christ that you don't know yet. I'm going to teach you about the two states of Christ, his glorification and his humiliation. And you don't know about that, but I'm going to teach you now in Titus chapter 2. What I'm saying to you is that's not what is happening here. He's going to address, first of all, the aged men. Secondly, the aged women. Thirdly, the young women. Fourthly, the young men. Fifthly, the minister who is sharing these things. And then sixthly, slaves. And in every case, he is going to be telling them where to fix their behavior or giving them standards for how they should be conducting themselves. And we find in the process of these directions being given to these different classes that there is a direct correlation made between, once again, the need 
for their behavior, their actual conduct, the dispositions of, you know, their heart, their mind, their life, their emotions, their tongues, you know, all those things, how we deal with each other, how we comport ourselves, all of that. There's a direct correlation between that and everything else we are as Christians, including the very word that we represent by being churchgoers, you know, and carrying around a Bible and having a reputation of, you know, we're under the category of Christian, you know what I mean? Like, so-and-so, she's a Christian down the street, you know? Or, you know, well, in our family, I know it's, you know, you know, whoever it is, myself or whoever, you know, they're the Christian in this family, you know? And there's a direct correlation that is made. So, for example, with the young women, young women, we're not going to emphasize this yet. We'll get to this if the Lord wills in subsequent studies, if he has us here and there on communion Sundays, just working through the various classes. We'll get to the young women. Once again, my purpose isn't to emphasize these things, but let's work through them. Young women are to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. There's a few messages right there, potentially. That's a whole lot to take in. But what I want to point you to is the reason why he would speak about all these behavioral things. He says, so that the word of God be not blasphemed. You follow that? So that we don't have young women who are confessing to be Christians and followers of Jesus Christ. We don't have what we so often unfortunately do have the contradiction in their personal bodily witness. They're not discreet, chaste, keepers at home, etc. And brothers and sisters, we're called to be the body of Christ now, after Jesus' ascension. Now we are the body of Christ and the members that make up that body. And if you're a young sister, you absolutely are in that equation. You can't, you know, just excuse yourself, as it were, and and say, well, the pastor's, uh, you know, he's older now and gray and so on. So he looks like he's relatively sanctified, but I'm still young. I still have some beauty to show and I still have some fun to live and so on. No, because that's not the way Jesus was. He didn't kick up his heels when he was young and just sow wild oats and live in the flesh a little bit just to get a taste and show others that, you know, he's a good virile Jew among others, you know, in Nazareth or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Our behavior reflects directly on the sum total of all that we do. And so when it comes to servants, he says to servants, you are to work not just when you're being watched, but you are to show all faithfulness. And here's why, even down to the servants. You know, you might think if you're in a lower social class, but you got saved and now you're a part of the meeting, you know, you're part of the church and you're loved and you know, I'm not dealing with all the questions that could be raised. We can just say, here's the reality. Real people are getting saved. Real people are in the meeting in Crete. And some of those people were saved servants. And they are, their circumstances didn't change immediately. Like James says, rejoice, because now in Christ you're made high. And you rich rejoice because now you're lowered, because the foot of the cross is level for all. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, he says even to the servants, your life and your behavior matters too. He says you need to do these things that so, so you can adorn the teaching, doctrine. That means teaching. 
so that your life will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That's the idea, brothers and sisters, of the, behaviors of the behavior of Christ's body. We want to make sure that our lives are adorning and beautifying, as it were, you know, the Scriptures. Let, let your life be the jewel on the cover of your Bible, so to speak. You know, you can see these Bibles that the Gutenberg Bible or whatever, you know, that's um, very ornately decorated and just gorgeous. And even the calligraphy on some of the pages, you ever see some of those beautiful scripts and so on on some older Bibles? Well, in other words, what I'm saying is, let your life be the adornment of the things that you teach. This is a high calling. But the Word of God is here to help every one of us. All of us are found in one of these classes. Now, I want to say, before we get to one of the classes and go into what that particular class needs to hear as far as the Lord allows for today, I want to say that the beauty of Christ's bride is perfected when Christ is beheld in every body part. Another way to think about the church, another biblical way to think about the church, another metaphor that is used is the metaphor of Jesus' bride. And what I'm emphasizing here is when we think of it that way, when we think about the church as Jesus' bride, and the Bible speaks of that, I'll be showing you a passage in just a moment in Ephesians 5 that makes that case. What you're going to find when Paul is speaking about that and using the imagery of a bride is, you know, it does sort of matter if the bride is beautiful. You know what I'm saying? I mean, brides classically are, are beautiful. And Jesus' bride should have beauty. Now, it doesn't have to be carnal beauty, but there needs to be a beauty that is compelling about Jesus' church. And each one of us need to be concerned about that. I mean, if I were to digress at this moment and start getting into stating various things that should apply to various classes or various individuals, which I won't do, but what I'm saying is anyone with a sensitivity to the collective witness of a particular church could begin right away to start saying or sharing various things where we could all sure ourselves up so that our collective witness is all the more powerful. So that if anybody comes into this meeting, they say, God is in you of a truth. Like I never saw a church gather together on time like you do. If it's just that, and I'm not suggesting there's any particular problem, I'm just saying wherever you want to start, you know, and, 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 and we do have, this is our calling, brothers and sisters. We are called to be Jesus' witness. And if you feel like, I, I don't feel like I measure up, well, I don't feel like that either on a weekly basis. And maybe that's good. I don't know, you know. I don't know about everybody else, but I have the experience of, you know, of being in this walk. And I hope God is helping me to grow and mature, but... Part of what happens, at least with me, when that does occur is then I look back and I feel like if I've ever, ever even been a Christian in my life before. So that's a little personal, but what I'm just trying to say, brothers and sisters, is it's the Holy Spirit that we have to yield to. It's the teaching of God's Word as it's anointed by the Spirit and our fellowship in God's Word and, and our learning as the Spirit teaches us how to pursue God and what are the best methods for growth and so on and the need to yield and change and all these various things, what we need to be concerned about. 
is to realize that we do have a responsibility to be that witness. It's your responsibility. That is each individual one of you. It's not mine. You shouldn't look at it that way. It's your responsibility to make sure that this church, this body has a beautiful, compelling testimony. Because the Bible speaks about spots that, you know, it ruins everything. And what does that mean? What is that teaching us? It's telling you what I just said, that unless every body part, every individual member is paying attention to how he or she, and that means you're an older man or a younger man, you're an older woman or a younger woman, you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're rich, you're poor, you follow what I'm saying? It's saying, whoever you are, there's something that Jesus wants you to model. There's a way that Jesus wants you to be. I mean, what is more compelling and beautiful than a sanctified, godly young man or lady? Amen? How compelling is a sanctified, godly, respectful, um, responsible young man or young lady? You say, well, that wasn't my past, okay? But what about regeneration? What about the power of the Holy Spirit to change your life so that people stop you on the street maybe and say, what has happened to you? You are so different than the way you used to dress, the way you used to talk, the way you used to, you know, where you used to go. All of this is exactly what living the Christian life is all about. Remember that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. Jesus loves the church. He gave himself for it. And he's in the process of sanctifying and cleansing it with the washing of the water of the word that he may present it to himself, a glorious church, not having any spot, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Well, that becomes fairly important because we realize that like with Joshua, remember Joshua the high priest in the book of Zechariah? Joshua had filthy garments on and they needed to be taken off and they were taken off by grace. If you go back and read in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, you will see that there's an act of grace that is performed on Joshua by the angel of the Lord where these filthy garments are just taken off and he is told, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I will clothe thee with a change of garment. And so God, when he saves us, he forgives our sins. He issues, as it were, a clean garment with which our lives are now covered. But experientially, I understand that there's a place in Christ that is constant when you belong to God. But you have to understand that the Bible talks about spots on your garments. And it's the idea that I gave you a fresh new life and you are to keep your garment clean. Because, among other things, Jesus wants a church without spot, without wrinkle. He wants a church comprised of members where no one is putting the blot on the witness of the body. Because I can't witness to Jesus all on my own. You know what I'm trying to say? Anybody watching me can tell immediately, I'm not Jesus. And that is true for any of us. And again, 
I'm preaching the word. I'm not trying to make technical statements. I'm not saying that, you know, there's some ability when the church all comes together that someone will really think they just met Jesus. But what I am saying is that when we grow up into him in all things, in the we is all of us, every joint and member, and we manifest the various gifts. In other words, you might look on me and you see things about me that don't impress you as being like Christ or it's not compelling. But maybe there's a couple things in my life that are approximating it because those are my giftings. And the same is true with you. And when you put those all together as a body, well, the body doesn't have to know everything about me and my foibles in the past. They'll come and partake. You know, as people come, they'll partake of my giftings. And they'll partake of your giftings. And when I go out to minister, I'm not going to bring the worst part of me. I'm going to bring my giftings and you bring your giftings. And this is how the body of Christ is manifest in the earth. But we all have to refine ourselves, of course, because there was or there were members in the church of Sardis that had defiled their garments. In fact, most of them had, because the Bible says thou hast a few names even in this church in Sardis, which has a name that they live, but they're dead, he says there's a few among them that have not defiled their garment. You understand what's being said here? In other words, imagine if the entire church of Sardis was made up of members that had not defiled their garment. They were like so many Joshua's that had, been, had their filthy garment taken away. God had given them a new garment. And then he gives them teaching, and that teaching enables them not to defile their garment. Imagine if it wasn't just a few in Sardis that hadn't defiled their garment, garments. Imagine if none of them had. Well, then that would be the beautiful bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle. And then again, before we move to Titus chapter 2, we have this statement from the book of Jude. And Jude is dealing with the influx of apostasy, backsliding, the sad degrading of the church's witness. He has to say in verse 11, Woe unto these churchgoers, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gang sayings of Korah. The sad thing is, is probably most of those who were doing that would not even understand what Jude's point was because they had so declined and began, began, be, became so Laodicean that they weren't in the Bible, they weren't in the Word of God, they weren't, you know, seeking God and, and listening to good teaching and digging deeper into the Old Testament and so on. They wouldn't even understand these things, but it was true of them nonetheless. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, you have to understand, why is it the problem to go in the way of Cain? What's that? What's the reward of Balaam? What's the gain saying of Korah? You've got you to gotta be hungry and thirsty and seeking after God and reading the Bible and pursuing an understanding of the Lord so that those things are the language that God speaks to you from. You know, you're in conversation with God. Otherwise, you're just going to church and you hear about all those things. You don't even know who they are. He says, such individuals are spots when they feast with you. So wherever they were, they were defiling the witness of the body of Christ. You know, if somebody was looking for Jesus, and that's what they're looking for, brothers and sisters, 
They're looking for Jesus. Their soul is looking for Jesus. Anybody who ever gets saved, gets saved because the Holy Spirit, in His grace and mercy, knows what the human soul needs. And in the case of this one, who He is going to bring into salvation, He draws them to Jesus because He is the answer to their soul. He is the fairest among 10,000. He is the desire of the nations. And so they're not going to find the body of Jesus that is His person somewhere in New England or for that matter in Israel. We are His witnesses. That is our calling. That is our responsibility. We need to take this seriously such that if someone comes and visits our church, we want to make sure that not just when they walk in and hear the sermon, but from the moment they come in, whether it's when we're still gathering or after the sermon or when we're fellowshipping or when we're leaving or at our prayer meetings or at our church picnics, if we have them, whatever it might be, that they watch our behavior. They watch our conduct. And we are pleasing God. When he once looked down out of heaven and saw his son getting water baptized, he said, you are just what I want to see. You are my beloved son. I wonder of how many Christians getting water baptized, he could say anything close to that. You're just what I want to see. Well, I understand that maybe at our water baptism, which happens early on in our Christian walk, we're not all cleaned up yet. I certainly was not. But we should be asking ourselves, when does that time come when the Lord looks down and says, you're becoming more and more what I want to see? Not so we can pat ourselves on the back, but just so it's enough for the disciple to be as his master so that we can do what we're called to do and do the impossible, actually. You know, this is where you find out if you're a Christian or not, I feel. Because it either strikes your soul as the objective of your life to manifest Christ, or it's a, another task for you in addition to going to church. You know, I, I'm going to church and now you're telling me I got to be like Jesus and I got to love this idea of, of manifesting Christ and I have to have a knot in my stomach and I have to have a, a compellingness in my soul to make this happen and a sense of shame in my life and a awareness of how much I fall short and a struggle and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's, that's what we need to have, brothers and sisters. And when we do, then we'll be attentive to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the churches and we'll get our garments cleaned up. We'll get these spots washed out. We'll repent of our sins.